Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H, and in this episode, my Gmail stupefies me. Don't worry, I'll go easy on Thanks, Ronald. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, it's Davey H. running solo again. We'll talk about that at the end of the program. But for now, we need to talk about Harry Potter. Because in the Harry Potter universe, stupefy, that's S-T-U-P-E-F-Y, or stunning, is a pretty useful tool for a wizard to have in his or her pocket. It renders a victim unconscious and can stop moving objects in their tracks. And that's pretty cool, no matter how derivative it is of Professor X's mutant power. In the dictionary universe, stupefy has pretty much the same meaning. It means to make someone unable to feel properly or to even feel shock or astonishment. In this episode of the Foodcast, we look at some of the clickbait health memes that find their way in our inboxes and social media feeds that follow along in the theme of I did, insert some stunt here, for, insert some duration here, and this is what happened. The question is, do these stunts stupefy? as in providing shock and astonishing results? Or do these stunts stupefy in a different way? An S-T-U-P-I-F way. Do we just become stupider having taken the bait, absorbing its content, and believing the results? If you're a tortured soul like I am and encourage the receipt of as much health and wellness, flotsam and jetsam as possible, you see these headlines all the time. I ate eggs every morning for 30 days and this is what happened. I quit sugar for 30 days, and this is what happened. I quit alcohol for a year, and this is what happened. I kept a gratitude journal for two weeks, and this is what happened. I drank two gallons of water every day, and this is what happened. I listened to every episode of the Foodcast back-to-back, and we'll never get those 27 hours back again. Anyway, you get the idea. Perhaps the best-known modern forebearer of this theme is the 2004 documentary film Supersize Me in which the director, Morgan Spurlock, ate only McDonald's food for 30 days and tracked the physical and mental toll it took. And so in that spirit, in this episode, we take a look at some semi-random samplings of these memes and see if we're stupefied with an E or stupefied with an I. The first attempt to stupefy is actually the byproduct of a question I get all the time. You know those meal kit programs like Blue Apron? People are always asking me whether they hold up from a nutrition standpoint. And so I'm using this episode of the Foodcast to take a look at it. And as full disclosure, I'm not looking at it from the standpoint of a customer. Blue Apron just isn't for me. I'm an improvisational cook. I don't like following cookie cutter recipes. Second, I can't predict what I want to eat a week in advance. Third, I'm a cheapskate. I know I can do better than Blue Apron's price when left to my own devices. And fourth, I'm all about traceability and knowing as much about where my food comes as possible. We'll touch on that aspect as we get further into this discussion. Just know that I come to this topic never actually having used the service. What I did do is talk to people who've used it and jumped on an article that crossed my desk that supported the stupefy theme with the headline, My One-Year Experiment with Blue Apron's Online Meal Kit Service. But before we get into the impression of these people, Let's get people caught up on what Blue Apron actually is. Blue Apron is a subscription meal service. To those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, subscriptions to tangible goods like food may be an intimidating thing. Who among us didn't send in the penny to the Columbia House Record Club to get 13 
vinyl record albums, something we thought disappeared, but kids today know very well, or tapes, something that thankfully have not been resurrected. The problem was that once you made that deal, you also committed to accepting four new records a month, every month, for the next year, at twice what it would cost you if you bought it at your local Sam Goody's, Penguin Feather, or Crazy Eddie's. See Crazy Eddie now, his prices are insane! Since you never knew you were making this commitment, albums you would never own in a million years, such as Barry Manilow's Greatest Hits, or the Starland Vocal Band, Afternoon Delight, would appear at your doorstep. Mom and Dad would then need to spend endless hours on the phone and in line at the post office to try to get you out of the commitment. But this ended up being even harder than helping Grandma cancel her AOL subscription. In the end, most of us just sucked it up so we could at least proactively select decent records instead of leaving the choice to the Colombian cartel. Thankfully, Blue Apron doesn't work that way. They avoid the too-good-to-be-true teaser, unless you're finagle with some kind of coupon or other deal. In their program, you sign up for three two-person meals a week or two to four four-person meals a week. The cost per serving is about nine or ten dollars. You can skip a week or cancel at any time, but there are some stipulations around that. You're provided a sample of meals that you can select from each week, and selections include meat, fish, and vegetarian options. They make no attempt to appeal to any of the allergies or sensitivities that are so popular with the cool kids today, so don't go to Blue Apron if you're avoiding nuts, gluten, or nightshades. But don't worry, the popularity of Blue Apron now means there's a similar service for every need. Prepackaged, ready-to-cook meal services are popping up every day. It's like how online dating services were just a few years ago, when new sites constantly came online to service a new niche. Strong Christian values? Christian Mingle. Cheater? Ashley Madison. Jewish? J-Date. Farmer? Farmersonly.com. Jewish Farmer? Both of you already know who you are and should already be hooking up. If you don't pick from the weekly options, they'll pick for you, unless you opted to skip that week. If you do want to skip a week, you need to let them know six days before the scheduled delivery. So you may want to have a few neighbors on call to pick up your box if you miss the cutoff. Insulated boxes arrive with ice packs, all necessary ingredients pre-measured for cooking, and detailed instructions for preparation. Blue Apron was founded by Ilya Pappas, Matt Wadiak, and Matt Salzberg. This is only noteworthy because Matt Salzberg went to the same public high school with other founders of hot food startups, including Che Huang of Boxed and Ken Chen of Nature Box. That high school is J.P. Stevens in Edison, New Jersey. Go Hawks! Home of other food luminaries such as Uncle Larry of Uncle Larry's Schlumpia fame and Davey H., your foodcast host. So at this point, the appeal of Blue Apron should be apparent for people who don't know or don't have the time to shop for or cook a meal made of whole foods. Blue Apron is a great alternative to going to Chipotle every night in that it broadens your horizon and you don't have to pay extra for the guacamole. Blue Apron also touts its many other advantages. They work directly with local and family farms to obtain their food. Eliminating the middleman helps control costs, removes a lot of the evil inherent within our food system, and hopefully moves some of that money that goes to those evil middlemen. They're evil, so it's okay if I say they're all men. And it puts the extra coin in the pocket of the farmer. 
Those farmers need the extra coin to pay for their FarmersOnly.com subscription. But I have to say, I don't know how true that all is, because even though Blue Apron talks about its relationship with small local family farms and provides some anecdotal evidence on their website by pointing to articles from the lying Washington Post about specific farmers, they don't provide customers a detailed list of who the products come from. I wouldn't think this is hard to do. Restaurants big and small can do it. Why can't Blue Apron? You can say you value sustainable and humane farming practices, but I want real traceability. I want to be able to go to the chicken farmer's website and see the webcam of the happy chickens frolicking in their pasture, regardless of the fact that they are chickens, so they're assholes. The final big feature of Blue Apron service is the reduction of waste. If you do cook, remember that time five years ago when you made that recipe that requires two tablespoons of garam masala, which you duly purchased a jar of during that week's grocery shop? I bet that jar is still in your spice rack and that to this date, it's only missing two tablespoons. Blue Apron gives you the exact portioned amount for each recipe ingredient. If the recipe calls for half a tablespoon of wasabi powder, that's exactly what you're going to get. To me, this is one of Blue Apron's most legit features. They buy in bulk, portion it out exactly, distribute it to the point of need, boom, no stale garam masala in the spice rack. That being said, there's still plenty of individually wrapped plastic packages with two tablespoons of garam masala, and the plastic will likely end up in the giant dead plastic wasteland of the Pacific Ocean, eventually. So what's the reality here? According to the article, My One-Year Experiment with Blue Apron's Online Meal Service, Lauren Good, the author, had an overall good impression. The meals and ingredients are high quality and require only basic kitchen skills and tools. My conversation with people I know who've used Blue Apron agree with this. Yes, you can find complaints through the Google machine, but the thumbs up overwhelm the thumbs down. The portion size seems to be the biggest place for debate, but the Goldilocks stamp of approval of just right seemed to appear right where you expect it on the bell curve. The meal selection reads like a menu at a decent or even high-class restaurant. Spiced cod and summer squash cakes with dates and baby greens. Roasted onion miso ramen with mustard greens and soft-boiled eggs. I'll have the roast duck with the mango salsa. I don't have much of an appetite, thank you. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. And no, folks, that wasn't even your daily allocation of Geico commercials on the Foodcast. That's a freebie, Geico. Meanwhile, Ms. Good's complaints were as follows. The lack of a single-person plan. I'm sure there's a huge market, but I could see where cutting recipes and ingredients for that need reaches a point of diminishing returns. Lauren, two words. Leftovers. And yes, I know that's one word. Like me, Lauren's perplexed about the lack of transparency into the suppliers. I bet you when you look into the dirty underbelly of Blue Apron, and there is one, they have a little less control over suppliers than they imply. The next complaint is if you want to skip a week, the policy is pretty draconian. That wouldn't work for Mrs. H and me, as we're footloose and fancy-free empty nesters who could decide on a sudden escape to the coast at the drop of a hat, even though the kind of hats that usually get dropped on us are never that glamorous and are more along the lines of, oh crap, I forgot I have a meeting tonight of the city's juggling while riding a unicycle commission. Next complaint is you still have to go shopping. Blue Apron doesn't eliminate the need to have staples around the house. And you have to worry about those other meals during the week. 
Most people will find it very difficult to end up with a net cost savings or even obtaining break-even. A final legit complaint is the inability to divert your delivery to charity. Once a year during American Thanksgiving, Blue Apron offers such a program, but again, with that draconian cancellation policy, it'd be cool if there was a turnkey way to divert the food you're not going to eat. The one thing I find oddly missing in any of the stuff I've read, and is what most people want to hear about when they ask me about Blue Apron, is nutrition. Blue Apron aims for each meal to be in the general range of 500 calories. They do provide nutrition information along the lines of what you would see on a nutrition facts label in any processed food, but they never intimate that they're providing some kind of balanced nutrition menu. They have a legitimate excuse that their meals are created by chefs and not nutritionists, so it's a bit of a goat rodeo trying to have the chef's color inside the nutrition lines. I'd say in general that Blue Apron's dependency on whole, minimally processed foods, mixed with its promotion of do-it-yourself cooking, says it's probably not one of the worst nutrition mistakes you can make, and it possibly could be a real upgrade to many people. On the other hand, I still think something stinks about the lack of transparency of suppliers. This is especially true with seafood. In episode 23 of the Foodcast, Chazerai, I talked about the healthiest, most sustainable types of fish. I can't tell whether Blue Apron abides by those recommendations. And fish is especially susceptible to mishandling and fraudulent practices. There's one other problem with Blue Apron. It's that dark underbelly I referenced earlier. Blue Apron's labor practices are notoriously bad. I don't think it's necessarily a result of Uber-like arrogance. I think it's the result of growing pains. The packaging sites for Blue Apron are pressure cookers. It's not a glamorous job, and between growing demand and high turnover, it's tough finding and keeping good people willing to break down industrial-sized barrels of garam masala into two-tablespoon cellophane packets. I include a link to an article from Fortune.com entitled, Report Details Blue Apron's Violent, Unsafe, High-Pressure Packing Facility, in the show notes. It's one of many reports you can find on this situation. It boggles my mind that people obsess about how humanely farmers treat their asshole chickens, while ignoring how humanely food processing companies treat their humans. Again, I believe Blue Apron is not malevolent, and that they're genuinely working to improve this situation. Because that's how J.P. Stevens' business ethics teacher Mr. Tracy rolled. Did I mention Go Hawks? So overall, I'd say Blue Apron, for its ability to introduce healthy cooking options to a new audience, you stupefy me. With an E. She Next up for the Foodcast episode, Stupefy Me, is the Tom Brady Diet. I thought this thing was so 2016, but when this week I got not one, but two emails on the Tom Brady theme, I knew I had to do something. One was from Thrill List. It was called, I Ate Tom Brady's Insanely Weird Diet for a Week. Here's what happened. The other one was from GQ. It was called, I Ate Tom Brady's Diet for Three Weeks and Giselle is still not my wife. What resurrected the Brady diet topic was the following. Remember when I said specialty versions of Blue Apron were popping up on a daily basis? So if you were anti-nut or anti-gluten, and or anti-nightshade, yes, I really meant nightshade, there was a Blue Apron imitator for you. Well, a Blue Apron competitor 
purple carrot, whose shtick is that they are plant-based, has a special Tom Brady branded version called TB12. That's TB, as in tuberculosis. I don't want to get into the purple carrot TB12 analysis, even though that's how the authors of the two articles I mentioned engaged in their Tom Bradyness. If you want to get the gist, it's pretty much the same deal as Blue Apron, only no meat options and, according to the two authors, an inflated price and preparation time. This may come as a surprise to many of you, since Brady rarely inflates anything. I do want to spend some time on the merits of the Tom Brady diet itself. It's something I talked a little bit about in episode 15 of the Foodcast, Celebrity Davey H., but we never looked at the whole thing and spectacular specimen of human performance and appearance that Tom Brady is, it makes sense to see if the secret's in his diet. So, what does Tommy eat and not eat? No white sugar, no white flour, no MSG, no olive oil fried foods, no canola oil, no iodized salt. Also off the table are tomatoes most of the time, peppers, mushrooms, eggplants, coffee, caffeine, fungi, dairy, gluten, and most fruits, which leaves two tablespoons of garam masala. Is avoiding all these different foods healthful? Well, none of them. None are essential to the human diet. It's possible to eat a healthy, balanced, nutritious diet and never let a dreaded aubergine or any of the other verboten foods pass through one's lips. Possible. For for us mere mortals who don't have personal chefs, not easy. Let's tackle them one by one. No white sugar. There's absolutely no downside of avoiding white sugar, and there's no concern about replacing it with some other food of equal nutrition. White sugar's only redeeming value, besides being an essential ingredient to Ben and Jerry's chubby hubby, is calories. No white flour. It's the same deal as sugar. No monosodium glutamate, or MSG. This is a bit of a longer story. MSG is a naturally occurring salt from a common amino acid that's found everywhere, including in your body. In the early 20th century, clever Japanese food engineers discovered that MSG gives bland food that savory, beefy taste called umami, and they figured out how to make it without harboring the amino acid glutamic acid from human bodies. MSG quickly spread throughout Asia and found its way in the kitchens of your neighborhood Chinese restaurant soon after World War II. So like fortune cookies, another Japanese invention we can discuss at another time that we currently attribute to the Chinese, MSG became mostly associated with Chinese food due to American assault on all things Japanese during World War II. In 1968, an American doctor, Robert Ho Mon Kwok, wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine that said, quote, experienced a syndrome whenever I've eaten out in Chinese restaurant, especially one that served northern Chinese food. The syndrome, which usually begins 15 to 20 minutes after I've eaten the first dish, lasts for about two hours without hangover effect. The most prominent symptom are numbness at the back of the neck gradually radiating to both arms and the back, general weakness and palpitations, unquote. He closed that letter to the New England Journal of Medicine with a, Have a wicked freaking day! Go Pats! Man, Dr. Kwok, you have the worst Boston accent ever. Based on this and many other anecdotal tales, the experience was dubbed Chinese Restaurant Syndrome, 
and became a bona fide thing, even though the only credible studies demonstrating the syndrome were done based on rats being fed nothing but MSG and the occasional couple tablespoons of garam masala. Hey, scientists had to get rid of it somehow. In fact, randomized control trials on humans with amounts of MSG on the high side of what people would normally consume have never been able to repeat the results from rat studies. And since then, MSG has been removed from baby food, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's also been blamed for everything from hypertension, heart disease, depression, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, asthma, migraines, dehydration, chest pain, attention deficit disorder, anaphylactic shock, obesity, and a whole bunch of different allergies. And yes, even murder. And that's not a joke. The widow of a man who committed a mass shooting in a suburban San Diego McDonald's blamed her husband's ill temper on the restaurant's overdependence of MSG. Although my guess is what really sparked it was that the McDonald's ran out of Hot Wheels to give out with their Happy Meals and offered him the Barbie toys instead. What? Too soon? But back to Tom Brady. There's nothing wrong with not eating MSG, but it probably does little harm too. For the most part, cooks add MSG to food because it would otherwise taste like ass. On the other hand, if MSG is all it took to get you to eat your Brussels sprouts, I'd go for it. Next, there's no olive oil fried food. And at this point, you may be asking yourself, isn't olive oil the good one? Isn't that what I'm supposed to eat? Yes, the Brady objection, however, is to the fried part. Olive oil is very fragile and has a relatively low smoke point, which is a fancy pants way of saying it shouldn't be exposed to a lot of heat. When it is, the healthy monounsaturated fats break down and become unhealthy oxidated fats that can harm your cells. You can avoid this by keeping olive oil heat well below 320 degrees Fahrenheit or 160 degrees Celsius. Ha ha, rest of the world, we Americans get to cook our olive oil at higher temperatures. But better yet, don't cook with olive oil at all and use it for finishing a dish and for its delicious flavor. One commonly suggested replacement for olive oil is canola oil, but that's on the Brady taboo list too. Canola smoke point is a sultry 350 degrees Fahrenheit or 175 degrees Celsius, which is better, still not all that high. When the canola oil is refined, it can push another 50 degrees Fahrenheit, but refined oils have their own ick factor. Other knocks about canola oil include that it's an omega-6 unsaturated fat, which is something we should limit, and it's often GMO, which this humble reporter doesn't worry too much about. But perhaps the biggest complaint is that most canola oils come from Canada. Canada. And you know, Canadians. Does this mean the Brady's don't fry at all? No, they use coconut oil. It's a smart choice. Coconut oil runs in the temperature ranges of unrefined canola oil. It also contains what none of you should be afraid of anymore, saturated fat. And it's a particularly healthy version of saturated fat. Mind you, there are lots of oils that'll support cooking at 500 degrees Fahrenheit or 265 degrees Celsius. That's the kind of temperature you may need to deep fry something. But Brady's don't deep fry, so they're all in on coconut oil. If it's good enough for Giselle's perfect Brazilian skin, it's good enough for Tom's crispy plantain sofritas with chilies and avocado mash. Next, no iodized salt. And I don't get this one. 
Your thyroid gland, which manages your metabolism, needs iodine to function. The main natural source of iodine in the human diet is fish and sea vegetables. When soil is high in iodine content, iodine finds its way into other plants and animals too. But in places where iodine is scarce, this creates a deficiency that manifests itself as a goiter, an enlarged thyroid that makes your neck look like Tom Brady's neck was grafted onto Gronk's. So, in the U.S. at least, the government encouraged salt purveyors to add iodine to table salt. The Brady's depend mostly on Himalayan salt. I'm guessing because it's trendy, and its pink color goes well with Victoria's Secret's line of Dream Angel bras. I don't get this one. I just don't. If you're going to use salt, iodized salt is okay. Then there's that list of seemingly unrelated vegetables on the no list, including tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, mushrooms, and fungi. And to examine this, we need to look at the source of all the Tom and Giselle diet shenanigans, a 2016 Boston.com interview, which I include in the show notes, with the Brady chef, in which he says, Tom, quote, doesn't eat nightshades because they're not anti-inflammatory. So no tomatoes, peppers, mushrooms, or eggplants. Tomatoes trickle in every now and then, but just maybe once a month. I'm very cautious about tomatoes. They cause inflammation, unquote. There's so much wrong with this salad of the edible and word type that I don't know where to begin. So I begin, as I always do, with a mansplanation. Nightshades are a family of plant that includes eggplants, white, not sweet potatoes, peppers of all kinds, and tomatoes. Now it's true, certain nightshades will kill you when you consume them. Belladonna is a nightshade that'll kill you almost immediately. It figured prominently in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Or so I'm told. I never read it. Tobacco is also a nightshade, but it takes a little bit more time for it to do its death magic. But eggplant, white potatoes, peppers, and tomatoes? Not so much. Yeah, all nightshades contain an inflammatory compound called solanine, and some people are allergic to solanine and they need to avoid it. Nightshades also contain a compound called lectins and are often blamed for causing autoimmune diseases, leaky gut syndrome, and the disappearance of the Brady's dog, Tiger. And this time I mean the good Brady's. You know, the bunch. Some lectins are harmful. Raw kidney beans are packed with them and are toxic to humans. That's why it's a good idea to cook your kidney beans before you eat them. Well, that and because raw kidney beans taste like garam masala. But the evidence small amount of lectins are bad for you is scarce. There's just as much evidence that shows that lectins in limited amounts help fight certain diseases, such as medically induced ulcers. Meanwhile, one of the healthiest diets around, the Mediterranean diet, is full of eggplants, peppers, and tomatoes. You can have a very healthy diet without eating any nightshades, but it's challenging. Peppers and tomatoes especially are full of vitamin C and an antioxidant compound called lycopene that's a powerful cancer fighter and is only found in deep red fruits and vegetables. Some people need to avoid nightshades. Most people don't and shouldn't. Here's where things get weird, because they're not weird enough. The Brady chef Alan Campbell called mushrooms a nightshade. They're not. And I don't know for the life of me why the Brady's won't eat them unless they think they're just yucky, which I don't agree with, but would understand. Gram for gram, ounce for ounce, mushrooms are one of the most nutrition-dense foods when you compare it to how much calories they have. So go ahead, eat mushrooms. 
Tom avoids most fruits except bananas. I'm going to guess that this is a matter of personal preference because his kids are allowed to eat fruit. Fruit has sugar, and if you want to lose weight, avoiding fruit and not replacing it with fruit loops or fruit by the foot or something is a good way to cut calories. But man, fruit's nutritious. And if you're someone who's burning a crap load of calories in workouts and abusing one's body being hit by 400-pound men, eat a frickin' strawberry already. Finally, we have gluten, dairy, coffee, and caffeine. I've spoken at length on the gluten topic in episode 17, Sugar and Gluten and All Grains Highfalutin. I've talked about milk, at least in episode 12, What's the Secret of Soylent, and I'll do more in a future episode. And coffee and caffeine had their go in episode 21, the epic Coffee ABCs episode. And I've said it here before that like other foods and ingredients I mentioned, gluten, dairy, coffee, and caffeine in general are not necessary parts of the diet. They have benefits in moderation, but unlike nightshades, which have some unique nutrition characteristics that are difficult to make up elsewhere, you can stop consuming these things and still thrive. Now, Going back to the Stupefy Me challenge that the two aforementioned articles took on of adopting the Tom Brady diet through his branded prepackaged meal site, TB12, both people complained it was expensive, difficult to cook, but most importantly, had mixed results in making these guinea pigs feel more energetic or strong. Both suppose that eating this way requires something Tom Brady has that isn't prevalent with us mere mortals. Ironclad discipline. I assume that Tom Brady has another characteristic that helps him get through this diet. It's one he's demonstrated on and off the field. Cheating. (coughs) So, what's my view of the Tom Brady diet? It stupefies me. With an eye. Our last Stupefy Me stun is done with an ice cream-like product called Halo Top. And there's two examples, one from GQ again, I guess they're into that sort of thing. And the other's from a site called Spoon University, a food-oriented site for the college set. Hey Spoon University, I'm still waiting for that review of the KarmaSense eating plan you promised to do for me. If this is because you're procrastinating and hoping you can deliver by pulling an all-nighter, it's too late. You missed the due date. If, however, you're just not responding because you're afraid how I'll take the news, don't worry. The college dating scene is where I learned one of life's greatest lessons, how to handle rejection. Anyway, GQ Shane Snow wrote, What it's like to eat nothing but this magical healthy ice cream for 10 days. And Spoon University's Meredith Davin of Duke University, Go Devils, wrote, What happened when I ate only Halo Top ice cream for five days? You know... Leave it to the Duke student. What most people do in 10 days, we can do in half the time. And there you have the premise of what would happen if you eat nothing but Halo Top brand ice cream for a period of time longer than anyone should eat nothing but ice cream. What makes Halo Top so, as GQ alleges, magical and healthy? Well, the health claim comes from Halo Top's nutrition facts. Depending on the flavor you choose, it's anywhere from 240 to 360 calories per pint. To put that in perspective, that's about 25% of the calories count of a typical premium ice cream. 
But even more impressive to Mr. Karmasense eat protein in every meal, every Halo Top pint has 20 to 24 grams of protein in it. That's on the low end of what I recommend for people eating in every meal. Now the protein number is only slightly higher than what you get from regular ice cream, but at 25% of the calorie cost. And that's where the magic claim comes in. Because you can get your minimal requirements of protein from Halo Top alone without the huge calorie cost. Theoretically, given how our body metabolizes protein, carbohydrates, and fat, you can survive on Halo Top alone for a long time. We'll touch on the protein phenomenon more in what I hope is the next episode of the Foodcast. How do they do it? Well, here's the total list of ingredients for my personal favorite flavor, peanut butter cup. Milk and cream, eggs, erythritol, milk protein concentrate, organic cane sugar, prebiotic fiber, high-fat cocoa, peanut butter made with roasted peanuts, sugar, peanut oil, and salt, vegetable glycerin, sea salt, natural flavors, organic carob gum, organic guar gum, and organic stevia. That's 16 ingredients. Compare that to a pint of Ben & Jerry's, a variety of ice cream no one claims is healthful, but has a certain high-quality ingredient, (coughs) halo, We'll do peanut butter cup to peanut butter cup comparison. Cream, skim milk, liquid sugar, water, peanuts, sugar, coconut oil, egg yolks, partially defatted peanut flour, peanut oil, milk, cocoa, salt, natural flavors, guar gum, cocoa, soy lecithin, and carrageenan. That's not too bad. It does contain the less than desirable carrageenan. There's no organic claims. And there is a few more ingredients than Halo Top. However, your typical ice cream from the grocery store will have twice as many ingredients, and half of them will be multisyllabic words you can't spell or pronounce, like propylene glycol monosteroid or Rob Gronkowski. Back to nutrition. Each pint of Halo Top has 20 grams of protein. The peanut butter cup has 12 grams of fat, mostly saturated, and 56 grams of carbohydrate, less than half of which are from the added sugar. Because food manufacturers aren't required to single out added sugar on the label, it's tough to guess how much of the 24 grams of sugar per pint is added versus from natural sources like the milk. But given that sugar is high in the ingredient list, we can assume that most of that 24 grams of sugar is added sugar. And so each pint roughly contains the maximum amount of added sugar that one's supposed to consume in a day, according to the American Heart Association. That, and the fact that the flavors contain very few of the vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients we need, you may be able to survive on Halo Top, but you're not going to thrive. Halo Top expanded its flavor line since both guinea pigs did their experiment, so variety is less of an issue. There are currently 17 different flavors, ranging from the banal vanilla to your fancy pants chocolate mocha chip in red velvet. So, by replacing much of the cream with skim milk, sweetening with less sugar and with stevia and erythritol instead, and some secret processing steps that somehow avoids your typical shave ice cube mouthfeel of low-calorie ice cream, Halo Top comes up with a decent ice cream replacement. The most questionable ingredient on the list is the erythritol, which is a sugar alcohol that makes some people have to poop, But in the scheme of sugar alcohols and sugar substitutes, as we learned in Foodcast episode 35, Sugar Substitute Rabbit Hole, erythritol isn't so bad. What were the guinea pigs' plans? 
Shane Snow of GQ would eat five pints a day, get about 1,200 calories with over 100 grams of protein a day. That's probably a significant calorie reduction of maybe even 50% of usual with more than the minimum need of protein. He'd do it for 10 days. Meredith of Duke and Spoon Universities, pick a side, Meredith. She followed the same plan. As they progressed, both reported being hungry. No surprise, given the reduction in calories. Headachy or lightheaded, also no surprise, given a reduction in calories and probably carbohydrates. And other problems such as aches, poor recovery from workouts, and in Shane's case, an unhealable canker sore that he theorized was made worse due to lack of vitamins. Both subjects lost weight. Shane lost 5 pounds in 5 days and 10 during the total. He also did a before and after measurement of his lean body mass and he lost no muscle in that time. That's a big deal. To lose what amounted to 7% of his body fat and it was all water and fat. Meredith complained that she didn't do as well. She didn't provide the same start and finish numbers that Shane provided. A girl never tells. So it's tough to say whether the almost two pounds that she lost was equivalent. She looks like a pretty healthy specimen in her picture, and so I assume she needs a smaller daily calorie intake than Shane. So the reduction to 1,200 calories a day probably didn't have a significant effect. She probably normally needs, I don't know, 1,800 to 2,000. Not surprisingly, both were happy when the experiment came to an end. So, can you drive decent weight loss by eating nothing but Halo Top ice cream for a finite period? Absolutely. Is it a smart weight loss strategy? 99.99999% of the time, no. So, this experiment stupefies me. With an eye. Just as I was putting this episode in the can, and no smartass, the phrase in the can is a metaphor for celluloid film container and not a toilet. Just as I was putting this episode in the can, some new information crossed my metaphorical desk that's relevant to the Blue Apron discussion. This info came from everyone's cult favorite, Food Safety News, with the headline, Research Shows Food Safety Gaps in Home Delivery Meal Kits, and the even catchier subhead, Failure of cold chain results in ready-to-cook meal kits with microbial loads that are off the charts. Do you feel me? Microbial loads off the charts. According to a joint Rutgers, go Scarlet Knight, and Tennessee State University, go Tigers, two colleges whose fight songs proudly extol the virtues of their nearby rivers, the home delivery meal kit market is akin to the Wild West with consumers leading the way. You hear that, Blue Apron customers? You're gosh darn pioneers! Any one of you lily-livered, bow-legged varmints care to slap leather with me? In case any of you get any ideas, you better know who you're dealing with. I'm the hootinest, tootinest, shootinest, bobtail wildcat in the West! Yeah, that's the kind of people you're dealing with. The researchers discussed their results at the 2017 Food Safety Summit in Party City, USA, Rosemont, Illinois. The summit includes such inspiring talks as the latest in listeria control, when the FDA comes knocking, 
how the pathogens in your drain could lead to criminal charges, and Never Say Never, case studies from recent foodborne outbreaks that blindsided us all. In the talk Home Delivery, the authors discussed their interviews with over a 1,000 home delivery meal kit customers and reviewed hundreds of review websites and found that 95% of the customers trusted the safety of what they received. But when those same researchers ordered 169 kits from a range of suppliers, they found that the vendors hadn't earned that trust. They found plenty of problems with packaging and labeling, but what you may care the most about is that almost half the meat-containing meals arrive with surface temperatures above 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4.5 degrees Celsius. Some products arrive with temperatures above a balmy 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 15.5 degrees Celsius. And those were the items that had bacterial loads that were off the charts. Now, in fairness to the blue aprons of the world, I don't have access to the actual study. And as any listener of the Foodcast knows, the headlines around scientific research rarely matches the reality of what the study can rightfully conclude. No vendor names appear in the articles I've now read on the subject. There are other aspects of the reporting on this one that smells of bullcrap to me, too. But just note, as another consideration in the meal delivery kit milieu, that if you find your kit's been sitting at your doorstep all day while you are at work, if you open your package and find the contents in disarray with the cold source more than halfway defrosted, if the meat in the package feels cool and not cold to the touch, be suspicious about what you're handling. If you don't, you may find yourself clinging to the can. And in this case, I don't mean a film container. And so we bring yet another solo episode of the Foodcast to its exciting conclusion. Given the additional information I just shared on meal kit safety, I think it's fair to say that while these human guinea pig food experiments may be interesting and entertaining, the eyes have it. They stupefy me and you in the S-T-U-P-I-F-Y way. I really thank you so much for downloading or streaming this episode. You guys are the best. And those of you who've cobbled together a review on your favorite hosting platform and shared your delight with your fellow food-obsessed friends, you're better than the best. Now, for the last few weeks, I've gone solo in the Foodcast. I have a bit of a problem. No, not the obvious, obsessive, in an on-the-spectrum sort of way problem that you know about. My problem is that creating this show takes a lot of time. I don't run credits at the end like a lot of professional podcasts do. First of all, because despite the Geico ads... This gig doesn't qualify as a profession, in that the income it provides wouldn't buy me two tablespoons of garam masala. I don't run credits because the creator, director, producer, narrator, engineer, craft services provider, gaffer, best boy, and most importantly, talent booker are all the same guy. And cat herding the talent is super time consuming. I have a ton of guests in process, but nailing down their schedule and doing all the prep work takes a crap load of time. I'm pretty sure I've turned the curve at this point, but I get surprised every day. When I look at my download stats, I can see I have a loyal group of listeners who seem okay with the solo shows. The problem with that is that solo shows don't grow the audience. When I have guests, their constituency exposes new people to the foodcast, and some of those new folks stick around because they like this train wreck or something. Without growth, I can't afford to keep doing the show. I like doing the show, but it's not the end of the world to me if I stop, so whatever happens, happens. Some of you, you know who you are, actively help me find motivated guests. And thank you for that, too. Okay, enough whining from me. 
Let's put this episode to a close by remembering what your old pals Disturbed always say. Just one. Ah! And all I needed was just one.